Dose to Leadership Podcast, Episode 70. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible to make your smartphone smarter. I'm so thrilled to have on my show today retired Air Force Colonel Martha McSally. She was the first woman in U.S. history to command a fighter squadron in combat, earning the Bronze Star and six Air Medals for her combat leadership and 325 combat hours in the single-seat A-10 Warthog. Under her command, the 354th Fighter Squadron earned the prestigious 2006 Air Force Association David C. Schilling Award for the most outstanding contribution in the field of flight. Martha is passionate about leadership. She uses her unique life and leadership experiences to impart us with tools needed to reach their goals, become better leaders, and inspire their teams. Martha, what a privilege and honor to have you on the show. Welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thanks for having me on, Richard. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. I mean, you know, being a fellow aviator myself, I was in the Marine Corps 10 years, 10 years in the Air Force Guard and Reserve, retired. Um, I love the Warthog. I got a lot of great friends when I went to – I was an instructor as a Marine uh, at Vance Air Force Base on a joint tour. And some of the, the – and even in my active duty field, running across A-10 Warthog pilots, they were some of the best, most fun group, if I can be stereotypical. They were just the best group of uh, pilots to hang around with in the Air Force, if I can be a little biased. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's a, for those who don't know the Warthog, it's um, a down-and-dirty uh, tank killer is what it was built for. It's single seat. There's no two-seat uh, model, so your first flight solo. And it's got a big gun on it, and it was, it was built originally to you know, go against uh, Soviet tanks in the role of close air support. So we show up on the front lines when, uh, you know, Americans are under fire, often in very chaotic situations with uh, families and enemies very close to each other. And our job is to, you know, deliver firepower so that they can live to fight another day and make it home to their family. So it's, it's an awesome mission. And it's, you know, we're not, it's not a slick airplane. It's not supersonic. It's, it's ugly looking, but it's, uh, it's very powerful, very survivable, and it definitely, I think, is a unique personality who chooses it. And I, and I did cho- choose it over the other fighters, the F-16, F-15, all that kind of, all those other options. So yeah, you say you say it's so ugly, but it, it's so ugly, it's beautiful, and that's what makes it so kind of unique and fun. And I th- and you're right. And I think it. And um, for those that haven't been around the Air Force or the military and pilots, it, it it is kind of true that you're you need to fly the airplane that fits your personality. And that's I guess what I loved about the Warthog, and maybe that's why they liked hanging around us Marines, because we were kind of, you know, 
wasn't all that glamorous and dirty and grungy and dirty and everything. And, and we kind of right. had a, a kinship there, you know, as opposed to, you know, if we walked in, literally, I can tell you how many times I walked into an officer's club on an Air Force base. And in one corner would be the F-15 Eagle guys, and they would not associate with us. But man, those A-10 guys would always would always come around us. And so uh, I think it's great that, uh, that that you went down that path. So let's talk about that. I mean, especially in the beginning, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps in the late '90s uh, into the early 2000s, you know, I was still in the Marine Corps. They still they just when I got out, they started letting women fly. Um, Aircraft. They didn't have any women flying fighter combat aircraft. So tell me a little bit about that journey, and and uh, you know go go as far back as you want, and how you've got you know associated with the Air Force, and and how you went down that path towards A tens. Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, we don't have time to tell the whole story, but um, when I went to the Air Force Academy, which is what I did right out of high school, um, it was against the law for women to be fighter pilots. And uh, how I ended up at the academy is a whole other story. I mean, my dad died when I was. 12 years old, a youngest of five kids, and my life was turned upside down mm-hmm. at that young age. And so, you know, I went through high school, on the one hand, um, very driven uh, to make uh, a difference and to excel and to make my father proud, but also still grieving and acting out and, you know, just dealing with the grief. And, uh, you know, I just would encourage any young people that are listening. And, I mean, you know, oftentimes you can see somebody who succeeded and you think it's all been rosy and it's just not the case, you know. So as I was going on that that journey, I didn't really uh, know what I wanted to do. And uh, I came home one day and told my mom, I was going to join the Army. I'm not going to college. And I really Mm. didn't even know what I was talking about. (laughs) So... Um, you know, I ended up, you know, through a series of uh, decisions, uh, ended up going to the Air Force Academy, but um, I was motion sick when I was a kid, so I had no desire to be a pilot at the time, and I really had no idea what I was getting into. My dad was in the Navy before I was born, but we weren't really, I wouldn't consider ourselves a military family. Um, but I knew the, you know, the, the discipline, the teamwork, the service, you know, getting a good education. Uh, being a part of something, you know, greater than yourself, that, that would be, that was what I needed at that, at that phase in my life. So I showed up at the Air Force Academy, not even wanting to fly. I thought I was going to go to medical school. Wow. And, you know, I go through the same training as everybody else, and I discover as I'm learning about the Air Force that just because I'm a woman, you know, I can't be a combat pilot. And mm-hmm. I, I just thought that was crap, you know. Hopefully I can say that on your podcast. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah, go ahead. You know, what, what is that all about? So, you know, it is against the law. Um, after World War II, when women were formally integrated into the military, although over 400,000 served uh, in World War II, uh, they, the Armed Forces Integration Act said it's against the law for women to be in combat aircraft or on combat ships. It was never against the law for women to be in ground combat. Uh, that's always just been a policy. And so I just determined... Um, while I was there, the Young Whippersnapper at the Academy, I was going to become a fighter pilot. And the law was going to change because it was wrong, and I was going to be ready and uh, qualified and capable. And I just declared that I was going to be the first. And I, I had that vision. I had the fire in my belly. I had nothing to do with any of the changes happening, but I wouldn't let that dream die. And I, you know, I worked uh, very hard at the Academy. Uh, to excel in everything I was doing so that I could be 
ready and able to go if the situation changed. And um, I actually wasn't even a pilot qualified at the time because I was too short, which is a whole other story. But I fought the system on that for several years and eventually got my pilot qual. Um, and after the academy, I went off to graduate school for two years uh, to earn a master's on a scholarship from Harvard, which was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. And uh, then I went to pilot training. So in 1990 to 91, I'm in pilot training, and Desert Storm happened. And while I was in pilot training, Congress repealed the law and said, okay, we're no longer going to, you know, prohibit women from being combat pilots. Um, so I thought I was going to be able to be a fighter pilot out of pilot training, but um, the Pentagon didn't change its policy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm an endurance athlete, so, so, you know, realized I had to wait a couple more years, but I knew it was going to change. I just believed it was going to change. Um, so I took an assignment as an instructor pilot uh, to keep building my airmanship and, uh, you know, my skills and be postured and ready if the policy changed. And in 1993, I got a phone call from the Pentagon saying they're about to change the policy. And, you know, was I interested in transitioning since I had earned a fighter out of pilot training? And I said, absolutely. So, yep. Wow. That's pretty amazing, you know, and especially being at the tip of the spear of that at the very beginning of it all, it must have been kind of a, um, you, you had to have met some, uh, resistance along the way. I'm curious to hear about some of those. I mean, it had, it couldn't have been, um, um, in some places you had to be met with people that wasn't with necessarily open arms with that. How did you deal with that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, our own chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, in the couple of years prior to the change had testified before Congress that he would pick a less qualified man over a more qualified woman any day. Um, and, it is, and he basically says, quote, uh, I can't explain it. It's just the way I feel. Um, yeah. And so here, you know, here is our, our leadership. And he had to decide whether he was going to resign or accept the policy. And he decided to accept it and implement it. But you knew his heart wasn't behind it. And, you know, it's a leadership issue uh, that you set the tone at the top. Yeah. And there was a lot of animosity uh, and a lot of resistance um, uh, going forward uh, towards uh, towards women integrating. And it was very, very emotional, as you can imagine. I used to laugh. You know, they, they would say women were too emotional to be fighter pilots, and I've never met a more emotional group of people than those who were against women being fighter pilots. Right. <laughs> you know, because uh, it, it wasn't necessarily rational. And, uh, you know, it was about making arguments about how all women can't do something and therefore all men can, right? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and it was really in two categories. Either women didn't have the capability, uh, either physical, mental, or whatever, and then there was the, you know, whether women should or shouldn't be combat pilots. So, yeah, it, there was definite resistance. I mean, I showed up for my first phase of training, uh, and I was literally ignored. Like, I really felt like it was it was like an African-American trying to get a cup of coffee in a cafe in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, I, I had professional military officers turning their back on me, Um uh, you know, just uh, the animosity was was at times uh, pretty intense. It was it was a bit of a lonely transition. I mean, I, I knew that I was getting into that, uh, and I decided to get up every day and just pray for the you know the strength to be able to focus on my tasks and the mission and the training and to do the best that I could, uh, despite some of the dynamics going on around me. And I knew that you know people needed to be have their minds changed one at a time. And, but, you know, to kind of get to the leadership lesson, it's a, it's a leadership issue that you set the climate and the tone, right. uh, for your unit. And so my, you know, my first commander actually ignored me and, 
uh, turned his back on me uh, in my first operational unit when I went to introduce myself to him. And he set a tone in, in the unit that was just very um, unproductive and, uh, uh, you know, slightly uh, hostile. And so it permeated down the ranks that people could kind of get away with not treating me um I'm not treating me well, but, you know, I'm not complaining about it. It is what it is. It's just the leadership lesson is that um, that tone is so important, and whether you say it verbally or whether it's your nonverbal or, or what, by what you don't say, you set a climate uh, for your organization that then uh, gives them messages as to how they can behave. And uh, about a month into my first operational squadron, uh, the leadership changed out, and the new commander came in, and he had the right attitude, which is, look, Martha is someone who's been through the same training as everybody else uh, and has uh, excelled at that training and is qualified and capable and is on our team and wearing the squadron patch, and we're going to war together. Our mission is to fly, fight, and win. We have a, uh, you know, we have responsibilities. Our lives are in each other's hands, as you know, you know, in mutual support when we fly together. And this is serious business. There's no time for these reindeer games and insecurity to be uh, impacting how we're uh, treating one another. Uh, the enemy is out there. The enemy isn't in our squadron. <laughs> and so yeah. he, set a, he set a tone of professionalism, of, uh, of respect, uh, and of no tolerance of anything uh, that wasn't going to be focused on the mission and the team and uh, the good order and discipline. And so that uh, really was a change uh, in climate for me. So that was an early lesson that I saw from two different commanders as to how, how to lead or not lead. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm sitting there thinking, trying to put myself in that position, and it had to be so lonely at times because you, can, yeah. you, you can't even win for trying because here you are. I mean, you have the passion. You have the desire. In your gut, you feel the policy is wrong or the law was wrong, and it's changed, and, and here you are. And no matter no matter what type of person you are, if you were – uh, a person who didn't deserve to be there or the person who was absolutely most qualified to be there or not, y- you couldn't win because they're going to sit there and think that you, you got there because of preferential treatment in yep. your woman. There's no, there, that had to permeate no matter what, you know, no matter how good intentions the, the people were, the other officers around you, that had to be hanging in the air all the time. And I just can't imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, so I applaud your, I guess the leadership challenge, like you said, is like you have to get up. You know, so what do you do, right? And you're committed. You believe in your gut. You still got to get up and you have to make the choice. There's, and I say this to my girls all the time. No matter what happens around you, you have tremendous power to choose how you respond to it. And that's what I'm hearing from you, I guess, is like every day it probably had to be a gut check saying, how am I going to respond to all of this? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, some days were more difficult than others, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I'm only responsible for what, what I could do. And I was, you know, I raised my right hand to serve. Um, and I needed to be the best, most capable, uh, you know, fighter pilot in order to, you know, defend our nation. And so I had to focus on my roles and responsibilities that I signed up for and how I was going to respond um, to some of the, you know, dynamics I was dealing with. Uh, certainly took uh, uh, sometimes, you know, counting to 10 or going home, going for a long run, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with, uh, you know, how to address it. But you're you're right. There is this dynamic of um, there's a, even though the real experience is you feel like you have to work twice as hard to get half as far, uh, when you do succeed, and in and, and my journey when I became then a flight lead, 
for an instructor pilot, and then I was promoted uh, early. There's there's always this element of people usually who who don't know you and never worked with you or flown with you who's oh she just got a head she's a woman and right. it's that you know opposite of what you actually experience which is you had to deal with such incredible uh, challenges that they couldn't even imagine you know right. uh, you know and you had to overcome them but you know that's okay you know it, it is what it is what I found was early on. Uh, you know, my first squadron, we deployed uh, almost uh, a month after I showed up, and that was the best thing that could have happened for the integration into my squadron. Now we're overseas, we're flying combat missions, and, um, you know, the focus has got to be uh, the mission and uh, being effective because our eyes are in each other's hands. And so that really helped me uh, become a part of my unit very quickly and and uh, a part of a team and be respected and because your performance is your performance. You go to the bombing range, you're either hitting the target or you're not. We score everything. So That's it's right. not subjective. Yeah. And, and in a single seat. So no, you know, nobody's going to save you if you're incompetent. You know, you're, right. you're, you're the one who's responsible. So, you know, I, I found, you know, quickly within my own units, uh, that I gained respect once I performed. Um, but oftentimes the challenges I had came from people outside my unit yeah. in the community. You know, I never knew, never met who just considered me, uh, whatever, you know, a threat to them in some strange way. And I just, you know, you can't get obsessed by that. You got to focus on, you know, your mission and your responsibilities, uh, and develop some thick skin, uh, and be able to filter out what, uh, you know, what you do need to respond to and certainly not react. It's always respond, not react, you know? So. Yeah. I think a lot of times people in situations, well, any situation where people are bothering you you're bothered by and they don't know you and you're bothered and and you can get really wrapped around the axle about trying to change this person's perspective you can't it's a waste of energy all you can do is control control what how you respond to it and then again at the end of the day your performance your results who you are as a leader your your integrity your character your values how you take care of people all is going to come through time and so it just takes that perseverance and that in that uh tenacity i guess to to see it through and uh that's what i think is great about your story oh thanks you know i'm very grateful that i did have the endurance and the uh and the the tenacity you know those are definitely characteristics i think i was born with but um you know just to encourage other leaders out there i just want to make sure they realize hey i'm human too and it was not easy yeah but you still got to get up every single day and you got to just you know focus on what you've been asked to do that day uh, you, you know, don't have a chip on your shoulder for anything you've experienced in the past. Just move forward, uh, with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the focus to excel and, uh, grow, uh, and, um, you know, make a difference where you are. And, uh, you know, I definitely had moments of frustration. I'm glad I had people around me that helped me, um, you know, kind of, work through some of that, uh, not, you know, offline, if that makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, so. Uh, good friends and family, and uh, you know, so I just want to encourage others uh, who may be in a similar uh, circumstance. Although people may say, "Oh, how can I relate to that?" Look, there's all sorts of circumstances you can relate oh, to. Oh yeah, that. definitely. You know, whether you're in, yeah, so you know, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, show some re- resilience and endurance. Uh, surround yourself with with people who you can, uh, you know, vent to if you need to, but in a in a closed environment and. Uh, and then, you know, get up the next day and be focused and and keep moving forward. 
You know, one thing that I'm curious about, and, and I, I, my two oldest daughters, 16 and 14, and, and they're, you know, we always have interesting um, debates, if you will, every now and then about, you know, policy and politics and religion, life, you name it. It's kind of fun. They're at that age and they're forming their opinions. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a, I look forward to those conversations with them. And, and the women in combat one comes up and, and I want to hear your perspective because you, you're the most qualified. I'm interested to hear your perspective. Here's where I struggle with a little bit, especially coming from the Marine Corps. Now, flying airplanes and being with, um, being an instructor at Vance Air Force Base, some of my best students, in fact, the best student I ever had was, um, uh, a female and she went on to fly fighters too. And so never for me, the whole women in combat thing has never been an issue about can a woman can or can't she, she, they certainly can. And especially when you're talking about flying aircraft or doing this now on the Marine Corps side of it, when you get in the infantry side, here's where I struggle because I see, um, with, I look at the mission of the Marine Corps and, and it is such a, a, and I can't even imagine, and I've met a lot of World War II vets and a lot of Marine vets who've seen a lot of nasty things in combat. And it's just, you can't even imagine, as you know, I mean, it's just yeah. gruesome and bloody and nasty and foul and, and vulgar, you know, to the nth degree. Right. The mission of the Marine Corps for me, if I want that environment where they're, they have the freedom when they're out there, you know, kind of like an officer and gentleman type thing. When they're out there in the field and doing the things, I want them to be, you know, their whole mission is to be maneuver warfare, unpredictable, thrive on the chaos, you know, an inordinate amount of aggression and violence on the enemy to win the day, right? right. And so when we introduce women into that um, scenario, what do you think? Do you think the cohesiveness of the unit is affected or and with, you know, not looking at the equal opportunity employment piece of it or the opportunity, right. but looking at it for the mission, do you think it's better in a Marine combat unit to have integrated men and women, or do you think it should just be all men? I'm just, I'm curious. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I, I think, you know, what you described and what many who have experienced in combat, it is, it is gruesome. It's not glamorous. It's, uh, it, it's, you know, warfare is not natural and right. it is a horrible, horrible experience that stays with, uh, people who have experienced it for the rest of their lives. And so it is not natural for a man or a woman, uh, you know, to be willing to, uh, again, go kill and, and, and sacrifice their, their lives, uh, if required. It, it takes literally, it's an unnatural thing for us to train people to become warriors for, for them to be able to endure and focus and do that mission and take that risk. Uh, so, so that's not necessarily something that like men have, you know, oh, this is what they would naturally do and women don't naturally do that. Right, it's unnatural yeah. for anything, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I look at it like, and this is from my own experience, but also, you know, having really studied as a, as a joint military leader and, and spent a lot of time around all the services and studied and researched and published on this issue is there's a couple of different elements. You know, one is, well, we want the best fighting force, right? I mean, we want right. to make sure that when we're coming down to business, we have got the most qualified, capable uh, force. And that includes um, things like physical strength, which is very much a focus, but also, as you know, uh, there's a lot of other capabilities you need. It's not the guys winning the Medal of Honor are not always the guys who bench press the most, That's right? right? So Great there's, point. Yep. You, you know, the aptitude is important. The courage, uh, the you know, leadership, sometimes restraint. Um, you know, there's so many different 
skills that our modern day warriors need uh to build that you know that whole uh picture of the capability of a warrior uh it's not just physical strength and so if we want to have the most capable force and we can do our best to understand what those standards are that we need in all those areas then why would we restrict 51% of our population from even competing right to yeah. to do that mission because it's just it doesn't make sense i mean i like same idea when you know when uh i graduated from pilot training because of the policy at the time, men who performed below me in the order of merit uh, went on to fly fighters. And at the time, I couldn't fly fighters just because of a woman. That doesn't right. make sense. No, you're right. Most capable, mm-hmm. right. So, you know, then when it comes to the arguments of sort of cohesion and male bonding is what they used to call it, right? right. Yep. And the you know, ability for, for people to come together uh, to, to focus on the mission. Um, there's been many, many studies on, on this issue without getting too technical on you, but there's, there's, there's what we call task cohesion and social cohesion. And studies have shown social cohesion is very much, hey, we are like each other. We're very similar, either in background, religion, race, gender, all that kind of stuff. And social cohesion kind of comes, you know, comes from that. And social cohesion is not a bad thing, but actually, High social cohesion in a unit where everybody sort of is the same and has that affinity for each other can actually be detrimental to the mission at times. Yeah. Um, it, the bell curve drops off. Whereas task cohesion, which is a, which is a fundamental leadership, you know, case, you know, trait of, of bringing a group of people together and having them form a team behind a common mission with a common purpose, with common core values, make sure everybody is trained and ready, standards are met, uh, you inspire and motivate, you give them a vision. When you come together for that task, it's task cohesion that actually has units perform uh, the best. And, and this has been studied even in, you know, again, combat uh, environments and, uh, and in other environments. So I actually think men and women together, especially in the kind of environments we have right now, I mean, they're already doing it in Afghanistan, yeah, you're right. right, where we need, we need men and women together to accomplish the mission. We we can't we realize we can't fight a counterinsurgency when we're not engaging with fifty percent of the population and we can't engage in some of these cultures uh in those environments without women engaging with women, right? And so hey, and I'm talking if you gotta kick down doors and clear buildings and you know do what you need to do uh it, it, to take out the bad guys, if you've got the most qualified capable team and the standards are met then why would you restrict 51% of your population from being on your team? The, the cohesion, I believe, comes from the leadership focus on the mission, not from the fact that you're all men or, or all white or what you know, whatever. And we have, in our military, really gone from thinking cohesion comes from a all-white male uh, unit, and we've we realized over time that that's actually not the case, right? That we've just had exclusionary mindsets. But it, we were better as, as a team when we allowed African Americans, and then when we're allowing women and all that kind of stuff. Because we're just if you if you set the standard, and you have the most qualified, capable force. That's what's going to have you succeed in combat. Not if you're all alike. Yeah, I love. I mean, I, that was such a fascinating answer, and I, I love a lot of the stuff that you said there. And I think that um, for me, and I think you know, it would work, and it and, and it will work, and it works. I think if people stop being so Sensitive, I think. I think, I know when you, when people, um, 
say you got an integrated unit and if in what you said there if we're all just focused on the mission and stop worrying about kind of the um I don't know the societal the the almost the political correctness piece of it and if you just yeah. focused on what does it take to be a cohesive unit what does it take to get the mission done um right exactly and, and stop worrying about if this is a woman, this is a man, this is a black person or what, it's the same thing, right? You're a human being right. and we're all tied in this together. Then it doesn't even matter. None of that stuff really matters. I think to me. And I think sometimes no, I agree. And oh, go ahead. No, I finished. I was just going to say that. I think that, it, you know, it, when I see the, the, the people that were so against say women in combat, and again, I'm not an expert on infantry combat and, and I'll, I'll leave it to them, but I love what you said. And I agree with you. I think if you had an integrated unit and there are certainly, Women that can do it and they could do it better than a lot of men. There's not a lot of them that want to do that, you know, but, right. and so do we, what do you do? Do you make the exception and do you make it the, you know, what do you do if you get, if you just got two women that want to be part of this all male company of Marines? What do you do? Yeah. Because everything. Well, I mean, and if they're qualified and they're capable and they're better than the next guy, why would you not have them in there? Right. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think the other thing is I've talked to a lot of, you know, I know a lot of guys that have been in the ground forces, and there's a, a whole vastness of perspectives. But, you know, some of them say things like, oh, you don't understand what it's like to be day in and day out in an infantry, you know, out in the field. There's, you know, just all the sort of, uh, you know, sexual uh, uh, objectification of women and pornography and this and that. I mean, these are the types of things that these guys just need to do in order to stay focused. No, they don't. I mean, give me a break. I think that is a total insult to the men who have fought and served in the military in the past effectively to make the argument that in order for an infantry to be capable, they have to be objectifying women and focus on pornography. <laughs> I mean, no, they don't. They need to be focused on the mission. Yeah. And that's, again, another leadership issue. The fact that maybe some uh, units have allowed that to happen probably has brought in a whole lot of, uh, you know, a bunch of cancerous uh, dynamics that, uh, you know, are probably de degrading the mission. But it's not, just because that's what you've experienced doesn't mean that's a requirement. You know, yeah, what the no. requirement for leadership is vision, focus, mission readiness, inspiration, competence, integrity. I mean, that's what people are looking for in leaders, and that's what makes an effective team. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I agree with you that, you, you know, you can't – that's kind of a false argument to say, well, you need to be – um, objectifying women and it's all about pornography. That's to have an effective fighting force, you know, yeah. but at the same time, that's where this, what I was meaning about the sensitivity piece. You know, I want, when you're out there killing things and breaking things and you're stressed, I don't think we need to be walking around eggshells, I guess is my point. We, we don't need to be objectifying women and, and I'm not saying all that, but at the same time, we don't need to be right. walking on eggshells because now we've got, no. you know, um, no. We just this, this, no, this is what we, we do. You wanted to be a part of this. Yeah. This is what we do. We kill things and break stuff. Okay, it's a dirty, right. nasty business. You want to, you know, this is right. this is part of the warrior culture. I'll, I'll embrace you in, in open arms in that warrior culture. I mean, does that make sense? I mean, don't destroy, totally agree. don't yeah. destroy the warrior culture for political correctness. I guess is where I'm going with it. No, I, I totally agree with you. And again, you're not gonna. I mean, a woman who wants to be in a ground combat unit. I mean, they're not gonna have a problem with that. Right. You know, they're not. You know, they're not joining there because they want to make sure they keep their fingernail manicured. I mean, they're That's joining right. there because they want to wear the uniform and they want to be a part of something greater than themselves. They want to serve their country and they're willing and capable uh, to do the mission that they're called to do. And they're just wanting to be not 
restrict you from doing that simply because they have ovaries. You know? <laughs> that's right. I mean, yeah. that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love this conversation. I, let me shift because I, I could talk to you for hours about this, but one of my biggest regrets is um, not taking command in the military. I, you know, I got out after 10 years and gone to the airline, and, and one of my biggest – I look back, and I try not to look back with regret, but I really you know, kind of regret the chance of, of commanding a squadron. I think I would have loved that. Yeah. It would have been so fun. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, that must have been – Maybe one of your highlights of your career. I don't know. I'm curious to see how what you thought about your t- when you took command of that squadron. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, you don't totally understand what it means to be in command until you're in command. And, I mean, I remember having this conversation with previous bosses about, well, you can make the same difference as a supervisor, you know, in the private sector because you can lead, and 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 that's true. But in the military. You know, command is such a unique responsibility because, you know, literally their lives are in your hand and you are the, the judge and jury, uh, in, in many cases, uh, you know, for those who are not familiar and we can kick somebody out of the military. We can put them in jail. You know, we can take away their stripes. We can, we can, uh, you know, put them into confinement. We can take away some pay. There's all sorts of responsibilities that come with command in order to maintain that good order and discipline. So it's a, it's a much uh, more serious level of responsibility. Um, and I mean, when you take that guy on, it, it, it's just, uh, it's just an awesome, uh, awesome thing. And it was the highlight of, of my time in the military for sure. Uh, two years of uh, commanding the men and the women in my squadron, taking them into combat, you know, all the way from Tucson, Arizona over to Afghanistan and back. And and being responsible on any given day to deploy within 24 hours to anywhere in the world, um, the the cool thing about it is that you really do get to set the tone and the focus and the priorities and put the resources behind uh, everything that you know that 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 you think is as a leader needs to be done. You actually finally have the resources and the capability and the authority to do it. Um, you know, growing up, as you know, in the military, you see good and bad commanders, and you kind of go, I wouldn't do things that way, right. and you learn from all that. And so finally, it was like, well, the buck stops here. This is now my responsibility. I set the climate in this unit. I'm responsible for everything that happens. You know, I may not be personally responsible if somebody does something stupid on the weekend, but I'm accountable, uh, you know, for the uh, 24-7 for, for the people uh, the airmen, the mission, and everything. And it was just awesome because it's like you had this opportunity to be the best leader that you could be uh, over two years, you know, to form and shape the team and the climate and the, the pride and the mission focus and to, and to develop your, uh, you know, your, uh, your airmen and to uh, reward them, to give, you know, give them opportunities and recommend them for opportunities. It was just, it was just awesome. I mean, I really didn't want to give it up. Yeah. Uh, when it was time to give up the guide on, but man, I, I learned so much and I was able to execute so much of what I had understood leadership was as a commander and a uh, really extraordinary experience. What, you know, probably when you got out, I'd imagine, especially when you got in the civilian sector, that's probably when it really started hitting you home. I would imagine it did for me on a smaller scale. Obviously I'd never took command. I mean, I made it, I was a flight commander, but I never commanded a squadron, but um, yeah. I never realized how much the military and particularly the Marine Corps taught me about uh, leadership, and common sense leadership until I was thrust into the civilian sector. Did you ex- have that same experience? Yeah, absolutely. And then in some ways, um, I think we, when we transition, we think that it's so different. The military is so different from 
you know, the private sector or anything you may experience outside the military. And in fact, common sense leadership traits are the very are the same. Yeah. It's, you have a different mission in the military, but the things that I learned in the military, um, as far as what it takes to be an effective leader, all those things are what we need in the private sector. Oh, yeah, so definitely. I found in, yeah, in the leadership development, business speaking that I've done, uh, the corporations and, you know, CEOs and others, it's some of the things that are even obvious to us in the military are like nuggets of gold to them that they haven't even thought about uh, in the private sector, and they really are totally transferable. Leadership is leadership. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I ran for Congress last year, and I remember thinking, I don't know how to, I don't, I have no idea how to do this. And somebody came up to me early on and said, uh, you know, Colonel McSally, you may think you have no idea, you know, how to, how to even run a campaign or whatever. And, and that is just not true. You are Colonel, you know how to lead. And these are all the same traits. You just have a different mission. And that was really good, um, wisdom for me because I, I then was able to look at this new mission and say, yeah, I know how to strategize, plan, and execute. I know how to set core values and set a tone and a vision. I know how to communicate well and make sure that people understand what their expectations are, uh, you know, inspire uh, them to, you know, be a part of something great and so make sure they know where they fit in, uh, give good feedback. And then we, you know, you know, the campaign looks a lot like, you know, a business or uh, a military organization where you have personnel and intelligence and communications and, you know, all the different functions, operations. And so those leadership traits are definitely transferable across the private sector and in other other things you do in life. I mean, even if you want to take on something in your community in a nonprofit or whatever, the, the basic thing you learn is how to lead and be effective in the military. They all apply. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, any, any degree um, of modest success that I've had outside of the military, and, and I advanced you know, fairly rapidly in, in the, in the, the companies that I've worked for, you know, in, especially in the beginning. And it was all because of the same, you know, but it was, I was just applying some of the stuff I learned, the common sense principles that are universal. And uh, I think that's where right. the bankruptcy is. You're, you're right. A lot of people have these misconceptions about the military that it's this big command and control structure. And really in, in the Marine right. Corps and the Air Force, particularly, I, I never worked in an organization that, that didn't, require you to challenge your leadership more than, than uh, the Marine Corps. And the Air Force, too, I, like okay. I said, I didn't spend a lot of time in the, in the active duty. I just was on a joint tour. But in the Marine Corps, you know, the, the Marine Corps Gazette is an, um, a publication that demands junior officers challenge the leadership thinking of the Marine Corps. You know, it's a publication I, where you get, you know, that's you're, – you're rewarded for challenging the status quo. So – then, yeah, it's, you know, it's, there's only 1% of our country serving the military these days. I've found in the last few years since I've been out, there definitely are those misconceptions. People think that, well, the military, it's just, everybody goes to work and you're just like uh, autotrons. You know, everybody right. just shows up salutes and they just do exactly what they're told. And the reality is you've got people that are a part of units and organizations just like you do in a company or anywhere else and they come from different backgrounds and they've got different strengths and weaknesses, different personalities. And so you, even though you have a chain of command, you have a chain of command in the civilian um, structure as well. And it's just a matter of you still needing to motivate and inspire people uh, to achieve their full, you know, full potential on your team who are motivated to get out of bed and come to work every day and be somebody who builds up 
the team and the mission as opposed to break those things down. And, and all, all of those dynamics are the same, but a lot of people don't understand that because they just think the military is just do what you're told or I'm going to court-martial you. Yeah, we have that, we have that element, but that's just really not the way it functions day in and day out. You know, it's no. still those basic leadership principles. Yep. The, the effective units, the effective, I mean, it's still the same. You take care of the folks, which requires you to, you know, have a, a understand that leadership is an affair of the heart. You have to love the people that you're serving and you got to take care of them. And if you take care of them, they're going to take care of you. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it, you yeah, know, and, and, and understanding of the simplicity of that is applications a little more challenging for a whole host of reasons, but that is really is the core of it. It's a, it's an act of love and it's a, it's all about servant leadership, period. Yep. Totally agree. Well, one last piece of advice before we go. I could sit there and talk to you forever again, like I said, is what advice would you give someone that's going into a leadership position for the first time or getting ready to or would like to? What advice would you give them out there? Well, um, you know, someone who's brand new and never been in a leadership position, uh, I would just encourage them that you learn to lead by leading, right? So you actually just need to practice it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, understand some of the basic nuggets, but then put them into practice. Um, you know, try and find some mentor or somebody who you can bounce some things off as you're, um, as you're stepping out in this new role. Um, I, you know, there's, there's so many different nuggets I would give them, but, um, I would encourage them to have a, have a healthy self-awareness of what their strengths and weaknesses are um, so that they can really understand uh, how to how to utilize their strengths and to some, usually surround yourself with people who can who can complement that, um, you know, complement your weaknesses, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I would encourage them that what people are hungry for, uh, and I've seen this, I teach it in the leadership development, what people are looking for in leaders are four basic, um, characteristics, okay? The first is honesty. The second is that you're visionary and forward-looking. The third is uh, that you're inspiring to them. And the fourth is that you're competent, okay? And and honesty is not just that, hey, I tell the truth, I don't lie. Honesty is that you do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. So you don't make promises to somebody in the morning because you really mean well, but you don't have a good system to follow up, and so you, you, you end up letting your people down, and then it becomes a credibility issue. So you, you've got to uh, sometimes, you know, set up systems for yourself to follow through on things. Don't take on more than, than you know, don't promise more than you can deliver, uh, and actually be authentic to them uh, about, you know, uh, do what you say you're going to do is the bottom line is what that honesty really means. You know, the, the visionary thing is you just, People just want to know where we're going. Mm-hmm. They want to understand where they are, a cog in the wheel, and and why that matters to a bigger thing. So if somebody's coming to work every day and they're doing admin support or they're doing, uh, you know, some other function, it's always important that they see why they are part of something greater and where we're going as a team, and then they can they can be a part of that. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than people feeling like they're in the dark and they just keep getting jerked around by policies or direction and they don't understand it, right? Um, you know, the third is inspiring them. Just, you know, again, tapping into that, that, that element inside every human being, that purpose-driven element of uh, why are they there and, and, and wanting to, you know, excel and, and be a part of a team that's, uh, that's proud of what they're doing and are producing and contributing and, and a winning team. And so you gotta be inspiring them. And then, and then the last one is, is being competent that, that you show that you are capable 
uh, you understand uh, the mission and the role that you're in. You don't have to be the best in every uh, you know particular competency, but you you have to show that uh, you know you can be respected and trusted because uh, you know what you're doing. And and so focus on those things as you step forward and realize that you may make mistakes, but authenticity uh, is important as you make those mistakes to be able to learn from them, uh, stay. Stay real and honest with your people and, and move forward, and they'll respect that more than anything. Well, great advice. Uh, where can they find you? On You got a website? Yeah, I do. Um, com is uh, my basic website right now. I'm also on uh, Facebook, uh, you know, Martha McSally, a personal Facebook page. Um, I do have a public figure page. It's uh, sort of associated with I just started exploring whether I might run again for Congress next year. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're, we just announced this morning that I'm in a serious ex- exploration phase. So some of the stuff you may see out there these days is a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, discussions on that. So, but com if you want to, you know, sign up or join me on Facebook and, you know, I'd love to continue the dialogue. So. Well, you're a great American, Martha. I'm so glad that I have you in my network, and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. It was it was really fun. We went almost 45 minutes. I don't normally keep it to 30, but uh, a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, let me know if you want me to come back, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, good luck to you and all the leaders that are out there. You know, go go make some great things happen. Awesome. Thanks, Martha. We'll talk okay. to you soon. Sure. Yeah. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.